Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, glad that you are here. Joining us online. Glad that you're with us as well. Hope you've had a wonderful weekend. Sounds like it's been a really busy weekend for a lot of people. That's always a good thing. Glad that we're able to get here together on Sunday morning and worship God. I don't know how many of you are coffee drinkers. According to the amount of coffee that Jerry and Kathy put out each week, apparently all of you <laughs> are coffee drinkers. Some people drink coffee to wake up, others wake up to drink coffee. I am neither. I've never developed a taste for coffee. But I did find a recent study about why people drink the coffee they drink a little bit interesting. And it was a taste test uh, to try to decide why people choose, you know, what they choose. And one of the coffees offered was an expensive brand. It was Starbucks, about three bucks a cup. And the other coffee was a very cheap brand. It was the Clover Coffee Company that sold through uh, Dollar General. You make it yourself for about five cents a cup. And people were asked to taste the two drinks and say which one they preferred. What they didn't know, by the way, the, the, um, they did, it wasn't a blind taste test. The Starbucks was in a Starbucks cup with the logo and the sleeve and the cup, you know, the lid, the whole bit. And the Dollar General was in just a white styrofoam cup. But they were marked Dollar General Starbucks. What the participants didn't know was they were the same coffee. <laughs> they were both the cheap stuff. The $3 cup had five-cent coffee in it. The five-cent cup had five-cent coffee in it as well. Overwhelmingly, 84% the people that tried both coffees said the stuff in the Starbucks coffee cup tastes the best. <laughs> now, that doesn't surprise us, right? If you have any background in marketing, if you understand advertising, we know that our brains are kind of wired in a way that marketing matters, presentation matters. There's people trying both of those cups of coffee. They'd already made up their minds that the stuff that they thought was expensive was going to taste better than the stuff that they thought was very cheap. Here's the point of all of this, and I've said this a couple times in this sermon series already. We severely underestimate how much we overestimate ourselves. We, uh, we underestimate uh, our capacity to be deceived. In other words, we are not as smart as we think we are. Now, we are looking at some things in the Bible, some things that Jesus said that might be a little bit uncomfortable, might be a little bit challenging, but he did say them, so we need to deal with them. And then we're also looking in this series at some things that Jesus did not say. Even though it sounds like something that Jesus or someone in Scripture would have said, and even though those sayings sometimes get quoted as being biblical, they're not biblical. This morning, we are going to take a look at a statement that Jesus did not make. In fact, no one in Scripture made this statement, and I'm going to warn you right up front, when I share with you the statement we're going to talk about today, you're going to disagree with me. But I'm going to challenge you, don't send your text or your email to me until after the sermon, okay? So here is the statement, God has a plan for your life. 
We like to tell people that, right? We like to say that when we or someone we love is going through a difficult time, difficult season. Hey, God has a plan for your life. Makes me think of the guy who was trying to eat a little bit more uh, healthy diet and trying to, to live a more healthy lifestyle. But there was a donut shop on his way to work. And he always stopped at that donut shop, but he knew he was trying not to. So he got in his car one morning and prayed, God, if you want me to have a donut, let there be a parking spot in front of the donut shop this morning. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, on the seventh trip around the building, there was a spot right in front of that coffee shop. Right? You know, for some reason, we find it sort of comforting to believe that God has our future so meticulously mapped out that even finding parking spots for us in front of the donut shops is something that he's involved in. But Jesus never said, God has a plan for your life. In fact, no one in the Bible ever said, God has a plan for your life. And I know some of you right now are about to come out of your seats, aren't you? Because you're thinking, I know that's in the Bible. In fact, I know where it's in the Bible. I can quote the verse that says that God has a plan for my life. In fact, I've got that statement, that verse printed on a coffee mug at home that I'm drinking expensive coffee out of. So, let's just go ahead and deal with the verse that you're all thinking of. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Four times in that verse, God uses the word you. So you need to know who the you is that God is speaking to. All through this book, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, warning them through the prophet Jeremiah about the upcoming exile that they're going to experience because of their uh, disbelief and rebellion. But God is also reminding them that even though they have broken the covenant, he's not going to break the covenant. And the exile that they're about to experience isn't going to last forever. Look at the verse right before that verse that's printed on your coffee mug. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. God is reaffirming his covenant with his people. Again, not because they've been good, but because he's good. And if you know your Old Testament history, if you just know history for that matter, you know that the Israelites were taken captive and led into captivity by, by Babylon. And 70 years later, the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonian Empire, and King Cyrus of Persia allows the Israelites to go back home. So, What's the takeaway from Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11? Well, one takeaway is certainly that God is faithful and that God's promises can be counted on and God's promises will be true. He's trustworthy. But it is a huge leap to go from a national promise to Israel to a personal expectation that God has my life so completely mapped out that it's going to happen exactly like it has to happen. That theology actually was made famous by a guy named John Calvin. Uh, and I'll 
try to explain it a little bit. There, there are two sort of competing theologies. Uh, Calvinism argues the sovereignty of God. And I very much appreciate that my Calvinist friends uh, claim the sovereignty of God, that God is on the throne and God is in control. But I completely disagree when they say that God is so in control that he's already decided who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're either in or you're out. The other philosophy is Arminianism, uh, which focuses on the free will of man, claiming that we have the right to make choices and our choices have consequences. Now, here's the deal. It's not really that easy and it's not quite that black and white because I don't know any Calvinists that don't look both ways when they cross the street. And we all tell our children, you know, there are consequences to our actions. And no matter how Arminian you might be, when life gets crazy, it is very comforting to know that God is in control and God is on the throne. So, so we all sort of believe, you know, we're in both of those camps. Yes, God is in control. But we also have choices. Choices that have consequences. The problem comes when you take either one of those teachings to the very extreme. People say, well, God's in control. And he has my life so ordered, so mapped out, every detail of my life has to play out like God says it's going to play out. Let me share with you a couple problems with the idea that God has a specific plan for my life. First, when you go that far, when you say that, that we don't have free will, you make God responsible for all the evil in the world. All those children who are starving in third world countries, all those people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, gambling, all those women who have been caught up in sex trafficking, you know, that's... That's just God's plan for their life. And you don't want to go there. In fact, I beg you, if you ever speak to a mother who has lost a child because of a drunk driver, please, please never say, I know this is tough, but God has a plan for your life. Now, I will grant you that there are times in Scripture where it appears that God has a specific plan for a specific person. So the question becomes, how do I know that's not me? How do I know that God doesn't have a specific plan for me? Well, if you're ever outside and a bush is on fire and it's not burning up, and you hear the voice of God say, take off your shoes, pretty good chance God has a very specific thing for you to do soon. <laughs> or if you're a virgin and you get pregnant, you just go ahead and assume that God has something very specific for me to do soon. Or if you're traveling somewhere and there's a light and it blinds you, and you hear Jesus talking to you, and then three days later you can see again, Go ahead and make the assumption that God has something very specific in mind for you to do. But most of the time, we live our lives with a lot more options than we do clarity. And when it comes to my life, I think of God more like 
a football coach than I do a builder. I'll try to explain it. The guy on the right is a builder. He is working off a set of blueprints. He meticulously studies those blueprints because he knows if he messes up one part of the, the project, if he gets one part of the blueprint wrong, the whole thing's going to be ruined. I mean, if he gets this wrong, wall wrong now, then that wrong wall is going to be wrong later. He's got to go exactly by the blueprint. The guy on the left is a football coach. A good football coach always has a game plan because he doesn't know what the opponent's going to throw at him. He doesn't know exactly how the game is going to go, but he's going to have things that he's going to do. He's going to have ways that he can combat and work against whatever the enemy, the opposite side, is throwing at him. So he's going to have some strategies, and he's going to be prepared to call an audible sometimes. Why? Because he's got his eyes on the big prize. He wants to win the game. Now, which of those two best illustrates how God uh, directs our lives? I think it's the football coach. But maybe you're more comfortable thinking that God is working off a blueprint for your life. Maybe you prefer the blueprint model. If you do, I want to challenge you on that thinking this morning. For one thing, that blueprint model makes knowledge more important than obedience. If God's plan for your life is a blueprint, then you really can't do anything until you have complete clarity. You can't do anything for fear that you'll do the wrong thing and mess up the whole thing. I can't make any decision here because I don't know what might happen next, so you know we get paralyzed. But the Bible doesn't talk about clarity as much as it does obedience. Think about those Old Testament heroes of faith. You know, they, the New Testament for that matter, so often they were challenged in, in a lot of different ways. They had setbacks. So often they didn't have a whole lot of clarity. But they're heroes of faith because they were obedient. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Noah's told to build an ark because a flood is coming. Noah has no context of what a flood means. In fact, he's building this thing hundreds of miles from where the largest body of water that would float it exists. Or you think about Abraham, who's told to go sacrifice his own son, even though he knows that his son is the son of promise. Or even more of a head-scratcher than that is Joseph, who won't compromise on his own purity, you know, his own personal integrity. He won't sleep with a woman of influence and power, so he's thrown in jail. And he hadn't heard a word from God. He has no idea what's going on. And yet, all of these men, and women we can throw in there too, are considered to be heroes of faith because they trusted God and they obeyed God even when they didn't know everything that was going on around them. Here's another issue that I have with the blueprint model. It makes God out to be a control freak. Listen, I absolutely confirm the sovereignty of God. But I don't think that God is a micromanager. In fact, this depiction of the God that's not in the Bible makes a lot of people mad at the God who is in the Bible. Think about this. You hear someone say, I just got engaged. I'm so thankful for God's plan in my life. 
Or, we're expecting, finally, praise God for his wonderful plan in our lives. Or, I just got that great job, my dream job. God has such a wonderful plan for my life. Or, my cancer's gone. God and his plan are so wonderful. What does that communicate to that beautiful young person who isn't married? And what does that communicate to that faithful young family that can't have children? Or that brother that just lost his job? Or that sister that just found out that her cancer's spreading? I believe that God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty allows us to experience the fallenness of this world. Rains on the just and the unjust. And I believe that God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty has allowed us the dignity of choice. He has given us the capacity to make choices, choices that have consequences, which I think is one of the best arguments for a God who loves us. And you parents get this. You don't show love to your children by withholding their freedom, right? A good father directs the steps of his children, but he doesn't dictate them. Because a good father wants to, his children to choose who they're going to become. We have a good, good father. He's not a control freak. He's not a micromanager. He's not a, a dictator dad. But he does have a game plan. We're all familiar with Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's God's plan. He's working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Everything that happens isn't good, but God can work good in everything. He can call audibles. He can send in new plays. It doesn't matter what the enemy is throwing at us. God has a game plan. He can handle it. Because God is keeping an eye on the big win. And what's the big win for God? Look at the very next verse. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. It is not that God has a micro plan for each of us. God has a macro plan for all of us. And God's macro plan for all of us is that all of us become more like Jesus. That's the plan. Which leads me to my biggest problem with this blueprint theory, and that is, it makes me the star of the story. The reason why this blueprint theology survives so well in America is our culture is increasingly all about me. I want everyone, from the person that sells me to my, my coffee, you know, at McDonald's in the morning, to the, to the person that, you know, I work with, to, you know, the, the trainer at the gym, I want everyone to tell me how special I am. And I want everyone to, to make me feel special. And the idea that God has a very specific plan for my life sort of buys into that notion. It's all about me. 
But the reality is, I am not the star of God's story. Jesus is the star of the story. But we live in a culture that worships consumerism. We look for businesses, we look for organizations. Sadly, we look for churches on the basis of, can they make the customer happy? And I'll prove it to you. What's the number one way that, that you kind of decide if worship service was good on a given Sunday? You leave and you ask the question, what did I get out of it? If you leave church on a Sunday and your question is, what did I get out of it? Rather than, what did I put into it to bring glory to God? Something is wrong. Because the story is not about you. And the, the unappreciated and maybe even the uncomfortable truth is, as Christians, our lives consist pretty much of just the daily grind of trying to be like Jesus. Usually in small, sometimes unnoticed, unapplauded ways. It's... It's being patient and kind to the lady who's checking you out at Walmart, even though she's not being patient and kind back. Or the lady in front of you at the self-checkout at Walmart, I should say, you know, who can't figure out how to scan her items. <laughs> it's serving someone over and over and over again when you know they're never going to tell you thank you. It's listening to someone tell a story that they should have wrapped up 10 minutes ago. But you're being gentle and you're being kind. It's loving someone who is really difficult to love. Discipleship consists of a whole lot of stuff that never makes it to the credits. Because God's plan was never for me to be the star. God's plan was always for me to imitate the star. Let me put this verse back up on the screen. God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. I am convinced that God doesn't really care where I work. But he cares a great deal about how I work. And I don't think he cares where I live. But he cares about how I live. And I don't think God really cared who I married or if I got married at all but he cares a great deal about how I treat the person that I'm married to. Because God is focused on his children choosing to become what he wants them to become. And so the big deal for God is for his children to make a big deal about Jesus. You think about the next chapter of your life. However old you are, wherever you might be in this walk of life, Think about your next chapter, whether it's more schooling, you know, a new job, moving to a different place, uh, a new relationship, you know, the end of an old relationship, retirement, whatever it is. You know, we think about the next chapter. What, what does God expect? What, 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 what is God going to do in the next chapter of my life? What am I supposed to do? And we agonize over that. Let me tell you what God wants you to do in the next chapter of your life. He wants you to make Jesus look good. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that's his plan. 
for you to make Jesus look good. Because Jesus is the star. And he's the one who did come with a very specific purpose, and that was to reveal God's purpose and God's plan to the rest of us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This, this is so good. God's secret plan has now been revealed to us. It's a plan centered on Christ, designed a long time ago, according, long ago, according to his good pleasure. And this is the plan. Here you go. At the right time, he will bring everything. Say everything. everything. Together under the authority of Christ. In heaven, you, now I'm messed up. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything. Say everything. everything. In heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because of Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us from the beginning, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God is in control. God is on the throne. Yes, there's still sin in the world. Yes, there's still an enemy to be dealt with. But let me tell you, God's plan is going to succeed. Because one day... Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything in heaven and on earth is going to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. And the amazing thing about God's plan is that he has invited us to be a part of his plan. Again, I don't think it was God's plan as far as exactly where I went to school, or even if I went to school. College, that is. It was Harold's plan that I went to school. <laughs> I don't think it was God's plan that I go to a specific college. I don't think it was God's plan that I marry a specific girl. Was he involved in my decision-making? I think he was. But I, I think I could have married someone else and still been in God's will. It wasn't God's plan that, that I drive a truck for a few years. Or that I work at a feed store for a few years. I don't think it's God's plan necessarily for my life that, that I have to be a preacher. God's given us, he's given me the dignity of choice. So I don't think that there's just one specific path that I have to travel to still be in God's will and be, be uh, faithful to God's plan. But here's what I'm convinced has always been God's plan for my life. And that is no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, no matter who I'm doing it with, God's plan for my life is that I be in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Because Jesus is the plan. Jesus is the plan. And so we live our lives on purpose. And we live our lives for a purpose. And tomorrow might bring sickness and it might bring healing. And it might bring a, a wonderful new job and it might bring a pink slip. We don't have perfect clarity about tomorrow. But we do have perfect assurance that no matter what happens tomorrow, Jesus is Lord. God is on his throne. And God's plan is unshakable, it is unstoppable. And it will be completed. We don't need more clarity. We need more faith. And we need more strength to be obedient. So that no matter what happens tomorrow, we look, we act, we serve, we love, and we point people 
to Jesus. Because Jesus is the plan. And I want to be more like Jesus. And I know you do too. As a church family, if we can help you do that in any way, we invite you to come to the front and let us know how. Let's go ahead and be standing uh, while we sing a song.